So tonight, topic is wisdom and compassion. And it uh, feels like a night where I kind of want to give a little bit of a disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> the process of putting talks together for me is phenomenal. And um, so putting it together this afternoon, when I started on the wisdom piece, I was reminded of a few years ago when I was putting together a wisdom talk. And as I was doing it, I was going through my files and just seeing numerous aspects of wisdom. And the teachings on wisdom are vast. We come at wisdom from many different angles. You know, wisdom being the first part of the Eightfold Path. Um, It, you know, involves right view, right thought or intention. Uh, Wisdom is seeing clearly. It's seeing the three characteristics of uh, experience. And so when I'd been putting that talk together and I'd been coming in contact with all of these quotes and teachings, my mind just got really odd. Like, you know, and just like, whoa. And feeling the depths of the, the, these teachings. And you know, at one point, I felt like I was just on this precipice of, 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 of what we do not know. <laughs> but anyhow, then there I was. And just this kind of this intense fear suddenly came up about what it really meant to live from that place of wisdom. You know, just that there was an implication there. That, you know, these aren't just words to be spewing out, put together in a nice, pretty way. But there's really something very profound and transformative in them. And, you know, I, then I went to give that talk. And, you know, I felt like I was just offering little grains of sand from this immensity that I touched into. So today I'm putting together the talk. I get through the wisdom piece. I'm fine. No, I'm cool, you know. <laughs> Things are okay. And then I started on compassion. And there was just a point where, I don't know, it was just this feeling as if my heart opened to the immensity of suffering in the world. And it was, again, this awe-inspiring moment. It was a a moment when the heart truly quivered. And there did feel like there was support of wisdom. So it wasn't like feeling lost in it. But it really had an impact. And (laughs) sorry to say the impact was I felt quite speechless ever since. (laughs) So that's the disclaimer. (laughs) And just this huge respect for the work that we're doing here. And, I mean, it just, it feels, in, not to say work, um, I mean, just the immensity of what's possible. You know, when I was working with the wisdom aspect, it was like there was no end to the wisdom. There was always a new door to open. Something new to be seen understood. And with the compassion to stand more steady 
more firm, more with that unshakable heart in the face of suffering. And it just all feels truly humbling. Certainly with compassion. When you stand with suffering, there's no place to feel big, proud. Oh, I'm compassionate. Not when your heart's open. Not when that natural responsiveness is there. So, tonight, doing my best to spout out a few words that might be helpful in our understanding of wisdom and compassion. Because as Philip mentioned in his talk, these are like the two wings of the bird. These are the qualities of heart and mind that really allow us to see deeply and to live responsively from that scene. Beginning with wisdom, the clear scene, the mind when it's not covered over by veils of delusion, when it's not lost or identified with the experiences of life. The mind, when it has that capacity to see, know, and understand life as it is. This mind, this body, Wisdom is the aspect that really gets strengthened. I mean, they both do. But Vipassana meditation, as we probably all have heard, is, is a wisdom practice, is an insight practice, is what helps us to see beyond this fabrication, this misperceptions that we so often get caught in. And really... See life in its immediacy and understand what's being seen. Wisdom is the aspect which Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was a, um, from Thailand, a great meditation master, he once talked about how through our practice we find our proper place amidst all things. And this is the mind that is wise, is clear, is not caught in struggle with the way things are. When wisdom is strong in our lives, it translates into being able to live fully 
on the relative level with this karmic lump, you know, this karmic lump of Miocian that has certain qualities, characteristics, that it moves in certain ways, to live honoring that with the wisdom of the absolute level that sees that there, what's happening is all conditioned. It's arising due to causes and conditions. It's constantly changing. And it's insubstantial in its nature. It doesn't belong to me, me ocean. It allows us to live honoring these two truths. It allows us then to live fully in our lives with our hearts wide open. Because when wisdom is strong, developed in our minds, is present, we find that out of this comes that quivering of the heart in response to seeing suffering. They exist so naturally together, and they support each other. Actually, one experience that I had where I really had this sense of how they're working together was with the death of my mother. It was, you know, a painful time that uh, she was fortunate and that she lived, in a sense, to be entering into old age. But old age is not such an easy journey. It's a time when the body decays. It's a time when the mental faculties start to decline. And it was quite painful to see her towards the end of her life, that there was an immense amount of suffering. And with her passing away, the sense of loss, the sense of just what a challenge it is to be a human being. And then there was this sense of the heart quivering in the rawness of life, the vulnerability of life. And there was this wisdom that held it, this wisdom that knew all conditioned things are of the nature to decay, pass away. It was it, the, the wisdom allowed that depths of suffering to be touched by knowing it is the way of things. Wisdom is something that, in the beginning, we will often hear from others. We hear teachings that resonate with truth, what we sense as truth. We get instructions that help us to be able to look for ourselves. 
But in the beginning, it's almost like we have to borrow knowledge. And we do this because it can really help to give a context to what's happening. Without a context, we can be lost and confused. It, I imagine it's somewhat like being a young baby. And you're this young being, and you get hungry, and it's really painful, and you cry. You want something. You want to take away this unpleasant gnawing in the belly. But you don't know if it's going to go away. You don't know if anyone's going to hear your cry. You're really vulnerable in it. And you don't have any context for it. But when someone speaks words of wisdom, it can help us to have a context for how we get caught, how we struggle, how we uh, get lost in painful experiences. And it can also point towards a possibility of there being another way. And this is what, really what the, the Buddha did in, the, in many of his teachings, and in particular, the teachings on the Four Noble Truths that um, Philip is sharing with us. I mean, these are very profound wisdom teachings. And I don't know how they are for you, but for me, when I hear teachings on the Four Noble Truths, it's almost like my heart sings. I mean, maybe it is like my heart sings. And, it, you know, there's something so inspiring about it. I, I remember being young and, and, you know, just feeling like there was so much suffering in the world and nobody talked about it. You know, everyone put on that happy face. And meanwhile, there was this cesspool of, of stuff that was being covered over. And then you hear the Buddha's teachings. There is suffering. And then, not only is there is suffering, there's a cause to suffering. Not only is there a cause to suffering, but it's not an absolute truth, and there's a way to be free from it. You know, and, then, and then there's a whole path to follow. Now this, this, and then our wisdom becomes fully developed when we realize that for ourselves. But first we hear about it. And, you know, in the hearing, it just kind of inclines the mind in a certain direction. It points towards something. Then we get instruction. And we have to apply ourselves. You know, it's just not enough to hear wonderful teachings. I go, oh yeah, I'm free. <laughs> no, not quite. Maybe for some it's been that easy, but <laughs> certainly not my experience. But we apply. And we get instruction how to do that. You know, an instruction is basically lessons in skillful means. What's been helpful to realize wisdom. And again, you know, we have to do the work. We have to be the one to, to pay attention, to turn up, to put in the time, um, to make the inquiry. It's not anything anyone can do for us. 
And then, you know, as we apply ourselves, the understanding starts to come through directly and immediately. It becomes something that has a transformative effect on how we live our lives. With wisdom, you know, the, there's different levels, you know, that, that certainly um, through meditation we find that we can have insight, you know, which, you know, insight is when we see something in a new way, you know, one of those aha moments. Sometimes in meditation we get that on the personal level, that there may have been something in our lives we've been struggling with, and suddenly, you know, it just comes up in a whole new light. And we see, oh, it's not really a problem. And that, that happens in the, through the process of meditation, not by sitting and figuring it out, but just that willingness to be with the different aspects that get triggered in relationship to that struggle. You know, in one moment there's a memory and the mind gets filled with rage. In another moment there might be another memory or a thought and there's sadness. And, you know, we just keep staying with what gets touched. And then maybe we forget about it and we're just with the breath or with sound, um, um, with seeing. And, And then it comes up again and we're just with the process. And then suddenly it's as if a knot just untangles and it's seen. Sometimes the insight comes through uh, seeing deeply into what we call the three characteristics, seeing into impermanence, seeing into the unsatisfactory nature of experience due to the impermanence, and seeing into the impersonal or insubstantial nature. And, you know, seeing these three characteristics is really what helps, it's, You know, they're called gateways to liberation because they help to uproot that grasping and identification in the mind. That wisdom just starts to set in, you know, through seeing how, you know, huh, (laughs) it doesn't bring happiness to try to hang on to something that's already gone. I'm just now reminded of a story from earlier in my life of really getting this lesson. I mean, we got to get it over and over and over again, and that, you know, that just is the way it is. But there was, <laughs> it was so clearly shown to me one time when I was living in a tent and living in this community. And, well, I was there. I'd been in this relationship. And then the relationship very abruptly ended. And it wasn't because of my wanting it to end. They, it had come from the other side, finished. And I was kind of devastated. He was a pretty nice guy. I liked him. <laughs> and we were having a pretty good time together. And then it was just like the wall was there. Uh, and I was really getting in the tizzy about this. And um, so, meantime, I'm living in this tent. I'm getting pretty distressed about what's going on. And I go home to my tent at night, and I'm working really hard during the day, so very tired. I go home, I get into bed, and I'm just about to fall asleep, and a little mouse comes in my tent. And the mouse 
comes and discovers right by my bedside my little stash of nuts, raisins, and very happily starts munching away. Uh, my, my most mice and me have we've had a tenuous relationship. I really they have been a teacher in my life. You know, maybe they'll be my totem animal. I don't know, but they've been a teacher on a number of occasions. So anyhow, but it's been a kind of a flighty relationship with, and it was a little disturbing to me having this mouse crunching away. And so, um, you know, it was a very disturbed night's sleep. And the next day, I went off, went to work, worked the day, again, got in a tizzy over this separation in the relationship, came back, got into bed, was getting into bed, and thought, okay, I really need a good night's sleep. So I cleaned up that pile of nuts and raisins, and I cleaned it really well, not a speck left. This was my way of saying, I'm having a good night's sleep. So I lay down, dozing off, and who comes running in but my little friend, back to the spot where the nuts and raisins had been. And I'm not worried. It's empty, right? Mouse is going to leave. Well, the mouse didn't leave, and I didn't like the mouse being right by my head, so (laughs) I scooted the mouse out. I believe the mouse actually found, you know, I zipped up the tent, mouse came back in, got the mouse out, scooted it up tight, you know, really tight, and thought, okay, now I'm going to sleep. Mouse is outside, I'm inside, no nuts, no raisins, mouse has been here. Mouse has seen this, right? Mouse knows now. Mouse has wisdom, right? (laughs) And then, you know, laying there, and suddenly... I start hearing this mouse running around the tent. And it ran circles around the tent. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. I am fit to be tied. (laughs) And then I suddenly have the thought, oh my God, I'm just like the mouse. There was something that was there. I feasted. I rejoiced. It's gone. I'm driving myself crazy. And it was, it was one of those aha moments. And then it was like, ah. And then I fell into this deep sleep, and I never heard from the mouse again. <laughs> oh. Now, where was I? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Probably around something around how we have these moments of insight. And, you know, I didn't suffer after that with the same guy. I might have done it with another guy. You know, for a while, there was an understanding that was there. No point in trying to hang on to that which by its very nature is subject to change. It's not going to bring lasting happiness. And this is just the way things are. No, it just allows one to settle back. You don't have to go after all the goodies. You know, they aren't the promise that they seem to be 
I loved it one time when a yogi said to me that, you know, in a moment of seeing how he just kept going after something, going after and going after. And then it was just like, you know, I just realized I've been betting on the wrong horse all my life. You know, we start betting on these, these impermanent, insubstantial experiences to bring happiness. And that's just not where we're going to find it. And, you know, it's kind of freeing when we discover that. And this is, you know, an element of wisdom. Our wisdom strengthens through steadying the mind, really allowing the mind to be present, mindful, aware, awake, and having this quality of investigation, interest, exploration. And this is, you know, I think I might have touched on this last week, but it's really where where it's not like you're, you know, we could have this sense like sitting observing this flat screen. But it's observing with intelligence. It's that letting the mind be receptive to what's appearing, what's being known. We need to have room for error in it, for making mistakes. Because when we try to apply in, you know, instruction that we hear from others, it's quite likely we'll have to fidget around with it till, till we see whether it's beneficial or not. Know that it isn't always really clear. There's a gap between what I say, what you hear. Sometimes I say things, it's not clear, it's not precise. Sometimes you hear things and it's not clear, it's not precise. (laughs) It's okay. But we really just use it. I love just exploring the mind, this potential, what's here. With that openness, letting go of the sense of what it should be, how it should be, our ideas, our beliefs. And just being with that inquiring mind. This inquiring mind, it's so close to wisdom. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great line. He says to keep asking yourself, are you really sure? You know, we get, we close the door when we get sure, when we think we know, that certainty that is really intellectual. There is a certainty that can come, but it's something that feels quite different. It's an unshakability of heart and mind. in our exploration, our inquiry, the context again becomes helpful. And this is, to me, is really evident. If you take something like what we commonly call the hindrances or the states of mind that when we identify with, they hinder or obstruct clear seeing. 
the states in themselves, not the problem, but the identification with. But it happens if you're really new to meditation that you sit down and if you're sitting for any period of time, you're likely to experience sleepiness. You're likely to experience times of restlessness, maybe times of doubt, times where you really want something, um, times where you're just completely aversive to your relationship. And if you don't have a context to it, you can feel sleepiness and think, oh, I'm probably better off to go and have a nap right now. You don't understand that this is a conditioned experience that we can learn to be aware of, be present to, that you know, we don't have to be run by sleepiness. Or we experience restlessness. And we think, oh, you know, I should go do something with this energy. Again, we don't have a context to hold that that says we don't have to become that experience. And so you know, just having some framework at times you know, words of wisdom, again, from another, helps us to kind of go, okay, so this is here. Let's look at it. Let's be with it. Sometimes we'll find the wisdom that we've heard coming through almost like a reflection So maybe we're really stuck in some state. And we just remember, oh, this too is impermanent. No, it's not our direct experience in that moment. But it can be turning the mind in a helpful direction. It can be turning the mind towards seeing the truth of something here. We have to watch that we don't um, use these reflections by way of kind of cutting the energy. Um, It could be like in a moment where we're experiencing loss. And we very curtly say to ourselves, well, everything changes. You know, and it's a way that we cut off distance. We don't open to that. But it can be in a moment of loss. Hmm. Yeah. This isn't the only thing that disappears. Other things disappear. Other beings experience this. And it it just, again, starts to turn the mind towards an understanding that's valuable in our lives. which is helpful so long as we don't mistake it for our own understanding. And it's really when our own understanding deepens and we really see clearly into the nature of our experience. We see clearly into the nature of suffering. We see clearly that all things are impermanent, insubstantial then we do discover innate wisdom. The wisdom that comes when we can let be.
And this is a place where words start to fall short, teachings fall short. But nobody can really tell us that has to be discovered, that has to be understood for ourselves. There's a, um, a teaching from Pa Tuang, who is founder of the Chan Monastic Order. He says, Truth's naked radiance, cut off from sense and the world, shines by itself. No words for it. On the deepest level, wisdom, insight into the true nature. We see this through wholehearted effort to be with things as they are. The insights arise through the steadiness, the perseverance, We don't create them. We don't fabricate them. But when the mind is unwavering, this wisdom, something that is boundless, from Bankai, the further you enter into the truth, the deeper it is. So the wisdom, one side of the wing, compassion the other, compassion that capacity to let the heart stand with suffering. Classically, the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. It's that pull, that really deep desire to be free from pain, sorrow. It's probably what's motivated us in coming here, what guides us through the day. Many times in our life, we struggle with what's happening, and we just want to be free. This desire to know true happiness. We see compassion in our practice in moments where deep rage emerges. And we're, rather than turning on ourselves, there's just a gentleness, tenderness. 
a softening. It's like, wow, this hurts. This is painful. This is suffering. We don't collapse in the face of it. We don't run from it. We don't deny it. Some of us might remember moments in our lives where we were touched by compassion, where we were in pain, and someone just said a kind word or had a comforting hand that they held out. It bridges worlds. It really helps dissolve the boundaries of separation, the isolation of self. Excuse me. Nyanaponika Tara, who was a German-born Theravadan monk, he often speaks so eloquently and clearly. He says, it is compassion that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. Compassion takes away from the heart the inert weight, the paralyzing heaviness. It gives wings to those who cling to the lowlands of self. It's really a way of moving back into that interconnectedness, that that wisdom. I mean, with wisdom, we really see the truth of interconnectedness. And with compassion, we see that we don't stand separate when there is suffering. When one being is suffering, there is just suffering. It's not them, that's their pain. It's just suffering. This compassion has a quality of fearlessness to us. And that, that really helps us move out of this sense of a small, separate self, too. And, you know, this is evident many times in the world where people are in dire circumstances. You know, maybe there's a natural disaster. And how beings can rally to help each other, to support each other how they can let go of some aspect of basic survival and be willing to help. And they're actually even proving it scientifically. There's a lot happening in the realm of scientific exploration of compassion. And many of us think, oh, you know, Disasters can bring out the worst of us or, or, you know, can just put us into that survival. And yet they're really seeing that there is a tendency of human beings towards altruism and empathy. Approving that we just see somebody in pain 
and there's a response in our own body. And this, you know, empathy is really how we learn to open to not just our own pain, but to open to the pain of the people whom are most scary to us in the world. No, it's really through developing an empathetic connection. That empathetic connection around how we all really have this basic desire to be free from suffering. And that through ignorance, through not seeing clearly, through a lack of wisdom, we end up entangled and we do suffer. But we start to you know, just touch into pain through that willingness to be with it. And just look in your own life. Moments where you did something, you saw something happen, and you just responded without thinking to help. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes, you know, fear comes in, you know, we, we retract, we recoil. But sometimes there is this natural response. We see it in animals a lot. You know, that they really um, do this. There's this one story from my life where I was, you know, into walking the loop, as many people do who live at IMS. I don't know if you've discovered the loop, but anyhow, it's a common walk around here. And at this time, there was, we were really in a dog phase of dogs and IMS. And there was one dog named Kelsey, who many of us said was a bodhisattva. Kelsey came along when any yogi was out in a field crying. Kelsey would turn up. And there was just great comfort in Kelsey being there. And there was another dog, Traker, who was um, you know, a bit of a character. But anyhow, so I like to walk the loop. And these dogs would often follow along. And it turned out that Kelsey had run into problems with two bigger dogs on the back of the loop and had been kind of chewed up by these dogs. And so when I was out walking the loop um, and got to the backside, Kelsey would always let me know we're entering into dangerous territory. And so long as I stayed paying attention to Kelsey, and I you know the dog, the other big dogs would kind of respond to telling them to back off. And so it was, you know, could be a safe voyage. But on this day, there was Kelsey and Traker. And, you know, we got to the area where this was happening, reassuring Kelsey, keep going forward. And Traker dropped back. Traker had a better relationship with these dogs and was dropping back to hang out with them a bit. But then suddenly these dogs turned on Traker. And Kelsey was with me at that point. And suddenly there was this yelp and scream from Traker. And Kelsey, in a flash, went back to help his buddy. It was just so touching to see that he just, in that moment, became bigger. Put aside and responded. And it was a good ending to the story. We all made it out safely. <laughs> There's a quote from Albert Einstein, which I love. And it's from What I Believe, written in 1930. 
A human being is a part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. One experiences the, their thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical illusion of one's consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Whether we come from wisdom or compassion, it's the same. With wisdom, we see into the interconnectedness. With compassion, we feel the unity. The, you know, suffering really changes when we don't personalize it. It's been so helpful to me at times when there's been some personal suffering, some place of entanglement. And just to know, this is suffering. And then to back up even further and say, all beings suffer in the same way when caught in delusion. It, again, it somehow has that help, again, of taking it from this little I, me, and mine and broadening it, opening it out. So we find that even through compassion, we begin to let go of the delusion of this small, separate self. I find the texture of compassion quite paradoxical. Because in moments of compassion, there is the connection with suffering. But there's also a sweetness because we are connected. There isn't the separation. And, you know, it, it's like, it, it sounds odd, you know, that, but there is this sweetness infusing the pain. As we practice, we find many moments where compassion strengthens, where the heart softens, where we, we aren't so thrown about by the discomfort, where the heart really quivers. We find that getting in touch with compassion really fuels our practice. You know, because this is a way that we can alleviate the pain, the suffering, the distress. It really gives a context to the work that we're doing here. And in the broadest sense, we can do this because of our interconnectedness for the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. And our practice, our heart, 
it becomes huge, open. So wisdom and compassion, they need to be in balance or they won't be true wisdom or true compassion. Wisdom without compassion can become dry, intellectual, disembodied. Compassion without wisdom um, can't hold the immensity. It starts to move into pity, to stand separate, because the empty nature isn't seen. I actually remember one time when I was on, I think it was a three-month retreat, and there was, again, one of these moments where it was like just seeing an immensity of suffering and just, you know, as if I was trying to hold it all. And I went in and I saw Joseph Goldstein, and he, of course, we know is very wise, <laughs> and in one of those moments just looked at me and said, only the emptiness can hold it all. And that's, you know, we find the unity of wisdom and compassion. But if you, you know, it's sort of like if you find you're starting to wallow in the suffering, it's needing a little bit more wisdom, more clear seeing. If you find that your practice is getting intellectual, disengaged, as you see something, really allow the mind to feel it, too. It's not to you know, make a project of it, but that they, they really are intertwined, in a sense. And we find that you know, when there is seeing things in their nature, there is great compassion, the natural responsiveness of the heart. I'd just like to close with the, uh, it's quite a famous saying, but it's just to remind us if we um, maybe haven't heard it for a while, from Nisargadatta Maharaj. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And between the two, my life flows. This is really the intermingling, the weaving, the wings of wisdom and compassion. So let's just sit for a moment.
May all beings discover the two wings of the bird, wisdom and compassion.